Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you, my friends? Thanks for tuning in. This is episode 93 of the podcast. If you're a new listener, I want to welcome you. Highway to Health is your place for trusted health guidance and support. Whether you're looking to improve your health or exploring ways to stay well, we're here for you. This is a growing community on a mission to improve our state of well-being and experience together. And if you love what you get here, consider becoming a health amplifier today by supporting this community over at patreon.com forward slash highway to health. And for the price of a cup of coffee once a month, you can help us provide free resource to anyone looking to improve their health and quality of life. And you'll help us continue to bring this quality programming to you ad-free. Or maybe there's a subject we've already covered here and you missed it. I'm happy to inform you that you can listen to our entire back catalog of seasons over at highway2.health. That's highwayto.health. You can also watch me have some of these conversations now on YouTube. Search for Highway to Health Podcast and you'll find this conversation you're about to listen to with Dr. Jason Soule up there as well if you'd rather see our faces than listen to it. And uh, this might be a conversation you want to listen to a couple of times. For those of you who haven't heard of Jason Soule, you may have heard of his Humanize My Hoodie project, which has gotten national attention and awards from the likes of John Legend. But it's the work that he isn't getting attention for and even shies away from that I wanted to discuss with him, because I believe it's the foundational work that is so needed to heal and positively transform our culture. Jason has been a criminal justice professor at Metro State and Hamlin Universities here in the Twin Cities. He's also served as the president of the NAACP in Minneapolis and has worked as a criminal justice advisor for the mayor of St. Paul. These days, he's dedicating the majority of his time and energy as an organizer, focused on supporting the lives of people in our communities who are struggling the most because of systemic forms of oppression. Black and ethnic minorities, indigenous people, women, LGBTQ, the disabled, the homeless, and folks struggling with substance abuse or addiction. We recorded this conversation the first week of the Derek Chauvin trial, and it's soon to conclude as I record this. And since then, our city is reeling from yet another killing of a young black man, Dante Wright, at the hands of police. I happened to be visiting my mother in Brooklyn Center last Sunday, just three blocks away from where this latest horror unfolded, in this quiet suburb just outside of Minneapolis. And when I saw the crowds and helicopters circling, I felt a gnawing in my stomach that the worst had happened yet again. Monday morning, Jason was busy doing what he does, organizing support for Dante's family, getting food delivered, diapers and formula for the baby, and reheatable meals for the week for the family. It's exhausting work, and Jason is determined to make change happen and continues to stay hopeful, keeping his focus on care and support. As he details in his book, Prison to PhD, a memoir of hope, resilience, and second chances, Jason shares his mistakes and his triumphs and asks us to consider what a society that offers aid might look like instead of a criminal punishment system ruled by police, politicians, lawyers, judges, and prisons, all with moneyed interests. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jason Soule. I feel grateful that that you and I were introduced in, in the first place, and I, you know, I've been following your work since about 2018 through uh, some some people in the art community, and um, I, I, my coll- one of my colleagues came walking in with you with your hoodie on, 
And so I was like, I, I've been trying to figure out a way to kind of bridge a conversation with you at some point, part, partly because I, I see there's a, there's a correlation between, between our work in, in some ways. I mean, I've been working very closely with trauma with individuals who are being adversely affected either physically or, or you know, emotionally and mental health wise. And I mean, that is your story, but it's also part of what I feel like you're working on trying to, trying to improve in, in, in our community. For sure, for sure. I mean, it's my life work. You know, I, I think it comes rather naturally because of the trials and tribulations I've had. So I can show up for people, you know, in the in a real way. You know, it's like yeah. I give people the help that I wish I had. So it's very easy, yeah. very natural for me to, you know, show that to other folks and say, hey, you can show up the same way I show up. You don't have to have my background or go through the things I've went through. Yeah. You still can help because you're doing it from the most genuine place. So that's what I try to bring to all communities. I try to bring it to prisons. I try to bring that everywhere, just showing up with love and doing your best work, yeah. you know, staying in that, that lane and, and trying to have the life you desire and want to have those things matter. And I just try to help people stay focused on that. So absolutely. I, I work aligns. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, and the, you know, the part of your story that, that really clicked in with me, um, when when you first, when you were started uh, as assistant uh, professor, at, I think it was at Metro State. Mm-hmm. You're you're teaching, you know, police officers or or folks in training, and you're and you're seeing you know basically people doing drills and and, and wrestling you know dummies to the ground, yeah. and just how you were talking about how mad triggering that was for you. Th- yeah. That I mean to to me. I, I don't know, and I and I think about when I, as I'm as I'm reading your story, I'm thinking about these these specific points in which you must have had to kind of keep reliving certain trauma. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I mean, it, it. There's no way not to, you know. Like even you, you know, I sent the email out earlier. This is like Donna Williams is on the stand. And this is actually like a relative of mine. That's how that's how real it is. That's your wife's your wife's cousin. Yes, yeah, my wife's cousin. Yeah. So this is a family member who I seen at the last family reunion a right. few months ago. So, I mean, it's just that real for me, yeah. you know, and I don't know why I'm put in these positions where I have to be a servant of others. But it's like I just try to bring my best, man. Like these these experiences I had at Metro State as a professor, I would always say you don't have to practice like this. Like this isn't the bulk of your work. Yeah. Yeah. All the research I'm reading says the caretaking piece and the the servant piece is what's needed in communities. Not this, it wasn't just tackling dummies to the ground. I mean, sometimes they were just driving through the parking lot with the lights on and trying to like, like doing simulations like that in the parking lot. And I'm like, this doesn't even make sense, y'all. I mean, it doesn't even like really make sense that this is what, and I had to see this for four months and I saw people change and students I had, I saw them, when you're doing that every day and watch everything and, oh my God, when you do that, so many hours, you get to a point where you just paranoid looking. Oh, even at your family members. Yeah, yeah. You, the, the paranoia doesn't cut off because it's like, hey, I'm a servant. I'm always on. I got, and it's like, man, it's a brainwashing that makes folks just develop a deep sense of anti-blackness. So absolutely, I was triggered all the time and nobody was really willing to listen. So you know, it was just important for me to get the experience and teach there. I think I taught. So we taught in St. Paul and Midway for three years, I believe, to 2012. Then a center for law enforcement opened up in Brooklyn Park. So I think I taught there 
I taught there two to three years. Present, like I, I was, I was advisor for the criminal justice club. I was teaching a three, four course load where I got three intense courses: literature and criminal justice, yeah. diversity issues and criminal. These are intense courses, so it wasn't just the running in the halls. When I had to sit with these students who aspire to be cops and got family members who are cops, of course, a lot of it is re-traumatizing, but at the same time, I know I can give them a deep education that they wouldn't get from the other professor that's telling it from a slanted view. Yeah. Sure. So I just felt the importance of it. And 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 just the, the whole culture of of policing, like you're talking about, I mean, people, people get into it in, in the same way that we saw, you know, sort of in the, in the Capitol riots, you know, people yeah. like the gear. It's like, it's like pretend superhero time. Yeah. You know, they, they, they really get into that. They forget about the, the humanistic aspect of the, of the person that they're, that they're working with. And, and it's, and it's built right into the training. Absolutely. It's, it's interwoven into the, I mean, it's within the tapestry of it all. Yeah. You know I mean? It's not, it, it's not just in it. It's a large part of it. Look, you got to understand, like in doing my work, I've had to travel. I've had to speak at conferences and give speeches and I can see what other conferences I'm doing. I've seen some probation conferences in Texas and other places. I ain't going to name all of the places (laughs) where they raffling off guns. And I'm like, you got to raffle for guns and y'all probation officers and y'all trying to like figure out what you need to do for your for your clients. Yeah. But the but the grand prize is a and this wasn't no handgun. I'm talking this was a hey to me this looked like a cannon or a bazooka or something because I'm like this don't make sense. So the whole field was traumatic and I just hope people understand why I'm saying I'm not attempting to reform that anymore. Yeah. I, I taught you know, I spoke at all the conferences. I've trained a lot of police officers. I mean, I'm talking over a thousand at these conferences and all of these places I've spoken to police officers. So for me, that's not my work anymore because it is too heavy. And you got to think I've shortened my lifespan just from engaging in, you know, the change that I want to see. And yeah. I know I won't yeah. you know, see it in my time, but it is coming. So the whole field is traumatic to people that look like me. Right. And 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 as you, as you explain in your book, um, prison to, to PhD, you know, you're, you're, most of the people in, in your life, in your younger life, either either went to prison or are dead. And and I, I think, I'm sure you, I, from what I read uh, from you, every, everything you say is is your gratitude that you're still here and able to do this work in the first place. So, so, so that's the only way to show up. And that's so for, for people who don't know your story, just, a, just to, you know, a, they, yeah. can, they can get it out of the book and there's plenty of stuff online about you. And I'll, yeah. I'll post some stuff along with the, with the podcast. But you, know, you, you grew up in Chicago. You were born, what, late, late, late 70s sometime? 78, yeah. So, I mean, th- th- it was kind of the height of where things started to get pretty bad, probably around 10, 12. How, how old were you when you, when you noticed... I mean, not, I mean not, I was, not, Chicago's always had problems, but I mean, it seemed like there was a moment there too in the early nineties. I mean, no, I knew it was bad. I knew it was bad in kindergarten. I like, I Did could you? see at five and six, I could notice it. That's one thing about me. I have, I was born with just a sense of trying to understand, you know yeah. what I mean? Just as a, as a little kid, I always wanted to see and figure it out and think it through and all. I, I just had it as a kid. So yeah. At five and six, things didn't make sense to me. Like, yeah. I really just didn't understand the ambiguity of it all. Yeah. Our lives were ambiguous. Yeah. And it was just like, we stuck in this radius. 
mom working every day. And yeah, in the early 90s, so you got to think I'm born in 78. So yeah, 92, graduating elementary school, I'm coming of age. I'm, go I'm going from a boy to a man. And in that, you know, it's a lot of, you got to get indoctrinated through a lot of things in order to grow. I mean, this is in the high schools. This is in everything. You got to think white supremacy works in a number of ways and it places you in certain parts in different cities and you got to like battle it out yeah. to make it, you know? So the whole structure of it all never made sense to me. And I used to always tell my friends like, Hey, I'm going to figure this out, you know, even when I'm doing wrong. So yeah, yeah 14 star selling drugs, against my better judgment you know it was a yeah. struggle for me like should i do it should i not i was talking to my friends about it i'm like i know i can make some money man like we can be out of this situation like yeah. you know so it was some people saying yeah get it most of my friends were saying don't touch it but ultimately i went with the poor decision and you know that definitely took me on a roller coaster ride but at the same time i was like still trying to figure out how the culture works so i could do some good in that world like i say i'm no saint yeah. But I was the drug dealer that was making sure people got to school because yeah. I was in school every day. I think I had, I had perfect attendance my freshman and junior year. So I still was in school, but at the same time, and at basketball practice, but at the same time, making some money going and coming from school always made me feel better because, like I said, I, I just hated being poor, man. I hated that feeling. So, yeah, early 90s, that's when you really heard about war on drugs like it wasn't called that or phrased right. or coined. We weren't knowing the terminology, but we were experiencing where the murder race was just insane. Casket, yeah. like, like I told you, my friend got killed in front of um Louis Farrakhan's yeah. bookstore. Yeah. And that was a place where people had respect on that corner of 73rd. You know, that's like, and the temple was on 74th. So in my neighborhood, I could see like pro-black movements. That was there. But you go four blocks down, crazy drug spot, pumping a bunch of drugs, different addicts, you know. So it was like I got to see some amazing things, but the trauma was just ever present. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it was ever present. And because I still stay connected to that world, because I still I bring people out of that world. You know, it's like a lot of my work. You see a lot of people doing well. They've been through extreme trauma and I've helped use the stuff I've learned and gone through to help get them up. But yeah, man, that drug game led me to prison. It led me to cops telling me they're going to blow my head off. But, you know, I realized I probably would have got some of that treatment anyway, whether I was doing good or bad, because all these cops out here know who I am and they know I had a positive aura. Right. My aura was always positive, right. even in high school and I got sent to Iowa my junior year. I dealt with all of that. Yeah, and I, well, that's, racist. I, I know I happen to know Waterloo, Iowa. My, I had family there. Okay. I, I, used, I used to spend uh, summers about a 20 miles from there in a small town called Dysart. Okay. <laughs> and my, yeah. my, my best friend who was biracial used to come to Dysart with me. Oh man! And I mean, you know, after the fact, I mean, when when you're when you're kids, you don't you don't you don't think about these things. But after the fact, I I know that must have been incredibly difficult. And and we still talk. So you know, we've we've yeah. we've, we've we've kind of gone back through some of our experiences with this stuff because you know, as kids, yeah. you're just you're just going through what you're going through. But 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 yeah. I, but I, I related a lot with you know some of the struggles you know that that you were going through in terms of you know you're smart. In, in, in school and, and yet teachers are sort of treating you a certain way, which then, you know, creates this whole cycle of like acting out and then feeling like, 
you know, everything stacked against you, which kind of leads people into different behaviors. Plus you're, you're already, I mean, was, this is the one piece I wrote after, uh, after George Floyd was to talk about it from my, from what I know about trauma, what, what, what I know about collective trauma and what I know about, you know, what it's like to be in these environments for long periods of time, where you're always on edge, your nervous system never gets to let down, you know, you're, you know, and it starts manifesting in a lot of physical ways. The mental health piece a lot of times is after all the physiological stuff that goes on. And, and I, and I yeah. could, you know, I could really relate to like, you know, that, that, that piece, especially for a child who just can't, who can't make sense of, of their world yet. And, and yeah. yet you, you, I mean, it sounded like you had a couple of really positive people in your life. Your, your mom sure. was, you know, it sounded like a rock and your, and your uncle who was, who sounds sure. like was also one of your maybe mentors or, or just role models. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't look at your mom as a role model when you're growing up, oh, you yeah. know, especially, you know, you look, you always look to a, to another man if you're a boy. And that's just how, you know, I was socialized as a boy. My sister was socialized as a girl and it's different socializations in there. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely, I did get a chance to see my mom get up every day and grind and just, you know, work as hard as she could. But um, on the other side of that, you know, my mom was a teen mom. My father was a teen father. He was 15 when my sister was born and my mom just turned 16. So, um, so it's like, they were super young and growing up in Chicago, uh, didn't know the traps, didn't know what was going on. So absolutely. I grew up with a sense of dad gets messed up, but I wasn't, I wasn't as nervous because I was trying to be strong minded and all of that stuff. Even if I was in a dangerous situation at 10 o'clock at night and I'm a 10 year old boy, I would still have the wherewithal to say, Hey, y'all, I'm getting up out of here. This don't even feel right to me. And people be all oh, yeah. you scared or whatever. You can say what you want to say. But I'm getting up out of this situation right now. And I think you should too. Peace. And, and that's just always how I, I can relate. Me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So so I'm grateful to have that sense of intuition. But absolutely, man, them, them trenches are destroy you, man. You got cops gunning for you. You got white supremacists gunning for you. You got child protection, snatching kids. You got... I mean, it's it's really like how you see in like the movies, man. If you watch any of them shows like For Life and Power, it's like, man, they throw people, innocent people in jail all the time. Yeah. And it was like with that looming over me, the threat of prison, that's where I think messed up my, like, that's what made me not be at ease, really. Right. Because it's like that threat of possibly getting snatched and thrown in jail no matter what. Like I said, yeah. I, I saw people in prison who I knew wasn't doing wrong. Yeah. And I and 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 that's when I and that's when I understood like, oh man, it's a whole game to this. This ain't no, and that's why I went to school and learned what I learned, and that's why I'm still here, gratefully, you know. But um, yeah, man, you're not supposed to make it out of there. You're supposed to lose your mind, you're supposed to be in a cage. All of that stuff is designed for that. And I'm just grateful to graduate from high school on time at 17, but the school piece wasn't my biggest concern. I knew I could understand it. I struggled with math sometimes and, you know, didn't get all the equations right and all of that. And I had architectural drafting too. So I had some classes that challenged me. Yeah. But for the most part, I knew, oh man, I can get through this class, like writing English effortless. Yeah. I can yeah. get through that. My whole thing was, I was raised with a sense of, you got to take care of everybody around you. Yeah. You got to grow up a little faster. You got to figure out something. I was raised in that. Not, not as much from my mom, but from my peers and the people that was around me every day playing basketball and in the hood. 
it was like, hey, man, speed it up. It was always this pressure on me to, like, get us to another place. So I think I, that's what allowed me to propel a little bit because people did see something in me right. at a young age yeah. to say. So I was tracked a little differently, but not much. I, you know, I still ended up in prison and getting shot and all of that. So right. not enough. <laughs> not, right. not enough. So, so how how did you end up? I I, I know you 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 did you finish high school in 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 Iowa? Yeah, I graduated from Waterloo East, and I still got friends. Eric, like I still got hundreds of friends there yeah. too. Um, yeah, yeah, and that was tough. I had a lot of fights. You know, um, I was homeless my senior year. That's right. That's uh, right. It didn't work out with my aunt. You yeah. know, she's pulling guns on me. We were fighting. It was just traumatic, and she's still struggling with mental health. So I don't yeah. want to you know, um, say too much about her, but it just didn't work with me being, she never raised kids. Right. And, um, you know, she had her own childhood trauma and right. us together, you know, and her birthday is July 1st, mine is July 2nd. People said just because of that, we were, <laughs> we were going to clash, but it was something that was making us clash. And I just was like, man, but it was because she was struggling and yeah. she continues to struggle. And, you know, um, just doesn't want to, you know, face reality. But at 16 and 17, it hurt me because I could be going to a dance and, you know, she having some kind of situation going on in her mind. And, you know, she'll ruin it with, by fighting me before I leave and different things like yeah. that. So my trauma was always pretty extreme, you know, and I used to just always say, damn, you know, I'm going to figure it out, though. You know what I mean? Like one time my friends was coming to pick me up. This was going to be an amazing night. I had on a Hey, I was feeling good. You know them days when you're feeling good. I, I, I was right. Had my cologne going. I was yep. feeling good. And um, Corey Taylor and Maine and I think Andre, you know, I think they, I think Andre yeah. was with them. It was three or four people in the car. Definitely Maine and Corey Taylor. They pulling up. I had to race up out of there. Just get enough distance. My shirt ripped. So, so when I get in the car with them, I'm not fresh no more. I didn't have this. I was just about to leave. So for me, I always grew up with this sense of you got to just expect the unexpected on some level. Yeah. Even when you had the best of times, you still got to have some level of understanding that, hey, somebody else might flip your situation. Somebody else. Like, even though you got the best, I went out on birthday parties with my friends where it's like, hey, man, we all going to the club and I can give the speech. We're not fighting nobody. We're not having no issues. We celebrating the birthday. We getting out. And at that like this was in St. Paul. This was like it was this 2005, maybe. Yep, 2005. We go to the club. I give the speech. Hey, be on your best behavior. Watch. Have a good time. The birthday boy got stabbed up in there six times. I'm like, man, you know, because I said, hey, we peaceful. He went peaceful, got stabbed up. Now we got to be violent. So right. it was like some things just never made sense in my life. And I just was always struggling to figure it out. But now that I'm older and have gone to school and learned the laws, I, I can actually give something back to the people that's, that's worthy, you know? So I'm just, I'm just grateful because like, like, you know, I've been shot. I've been through a lot. I had to carry a gun in high school. Yeah. My, like I've always had this level of being smart and can do things, playing basketball, Killing them in basketball. So whoever, if you know people du during my years, as you, dualities, as you say. Yeah, yeah. So you, if you know people in Iowa who was there ninety four to ninety six, they'll tell you. Like when I came to your gym, I wasn't. I, I was nothing nice. I'm coming to. I was Kevin Garnett. I was like, I had the Kevin Garnett energy. Like I'm trying yeah. to block your. You know. So 
it was like I had some fun in high school and stuff. And I think that's, that has allowed me to weather storms too. Four years of high school discipline playing at Dunbar, which is very well known for basketball in Chicago. Then thinking about Waterloo East, who they compete for championships nearly every year. My friends are the coaches. Yeah. Is that right? Now, the people I played with in high school, now they coach the girls' teams and all of that stuff too. So that's exciting to see the change, you know, to see the next generation after after us. So that's from pretty nice. Well, too. So, so let's let's talk about the change because I mean this is this yeah. is the part that's like I mean, any anyone who who reads your story can be like, Well, how do you how do you recover? You know, like how do you how how do you how do you get that balance back once you've been once you've been through that kind of trauma? And this is what yeah. I this is what I work with on a, on a daily basis. So, well, yeah. how, what what was your what was your process like? Yeah, I think really coming to grips with all of the stuff that happened. You know, like you know coming to grips with the fact that I let my mom down on a number of levels. Just really trying to make amends, a real amends, not no fake. You know, just accept me back because it was a lot of times where I told her I was going to change. Like even at 15, when she sent me to Iowa, I told her I was going to change then. Yeah. Then I had these and she couldn't understand these. I had these major heartbreaks where I had a nice plan and then the plan gets snatched away. And she wasn't seeing that. I just didn't know how to respond adequately to that. So for me, making amends with my mom allowed me to say, oh, she really don't see like. These things are impacting me whenever they happen to me. Graduating on high school without a parent, that's not that's not normal. You know what I mean? That's not like a lot of people don't get that. Like I'm really going to school, driving my car after school. I'm free. I'm open. I don't got no I don't got my own place. Yeah. So for me. She wasn't understanding how that stuff was impacting me because she was just looking at it like, no, nah, you could do more if you playing basketball and you doing this, you just choosing this other lifestyle. And I was like, man, you don't understand these bad breaks. I can't, I can't stop them because it's, they not of my doing. Yeah. So I think making amends first, you know, like apologizing to my brother for not being there. Yeah. Uh, he was just here this weekend, you know, with his family and all that. So it's like, for me, I just really said, I had to look in the mirror and say, man, can, can you really figure this stuff out? Because you got to think I'm three time convicted, you yeah. know, like, and I've been shot. I've always said after my traumas, hey, mom, this is it. I understand. I got it. Yup, I'm shot. I can't walk. I got you. I get it. Then I still slip into, because I was always just getting a little, I was always getting a little better. Getting yeah. shot woke me up. Oh, my God, I could die out here. Yeah. They could have been planning a funeral. Like, that, that, that hit me. I understood that I received it. And it made me say, okay, I'm ending this gang beef. You know, we got to go through what we go through. But after that, it was like, hey, y'all, we done. You know what I'm saying? I see you. you. You go. You see me. Let me and mine go. We don't need to do that. And I did this in every hood. I yeah. did this everywhere. Yeah. And um, but, the, but, always, but that, that, that moment wasn't necessarily like the I, th I think I've heard you talk about how that that moment didn't necessarily completely turn you. You still no. Yeah. You know, and that's what I mean. I was I was taking steps. With everything that happened, I was taking steps. I I, I make peace and say, "Hey, man, we not we not game bang with y'all no more." Right. But at the same time, I was selling drugs. Right. So I thought I was doing something good by right. saying, "Okay, I put the gun down, and I just sell my drugs." This is you gotta think. This is young thinking. This is not. You're like twenty or something, right? Yeah, nineteen. Yeah. Eighteen, yeah. nineteen. It's right after high school. So 
after high school, I went back to the streets. I worked at Target. I had jobs. So, I, like, <clears throat> duality remains yeah, at, yeah. This, at this time. And um, I just, the, the change really, really occurred. Number of things. I can't point to just one thing. No, no. Of course, um, going to college, that's a milestone. When I went in there, it was desperation. I was just desperate. Uh, I was 24, 25. I was 24 when I started filling out paperwork and stuff, but I, I went there with really just, I had no aim. I had no purpose. I just said, hey, I, I need some college. Yeah. That changed a lot of things. I met my wife in college. Yeah. Like, I have children. So I think, and I, and I, and I just needed time to grow a little older. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, you know, my 20s definitely look different from my 30s. My 30s yeah. are married, got, got children, bought a house, you know, um, things that I needed when I was younger and things that I could handle um, at 21, 22, because I understood those yeah. things out here in the Twin Cities and in Chicago. And like I say, the cops saw it, educators, anybody who was around during my years, they saw me having the potential. Yeah. I got the cars. I got all, I could figure out things. But at the same time, I was consumed in the world. When I came home from prison, I said, I set my friends down. I set my mom down. I said, hey, I'm really finna try something different. Just support me. Yeah. Hold me down. And that's what changed things, man. Just really being being able to sit with everybody you hurt. You know, I, I really like it's an uncomfortable feeling, man. Yeah. Like to sit with the fact that you hurt somebody and got to sit through that, but I've always been open to it. I'm like, man, I ain't trying to hurt nobody. So if I do harm you, hold me accountable. Yeah. Like check me, you know, send me a text if you think I'm slipping or whatever. And when you, when you really submit to that and just say, Hey, I'm not fully in control. And that's what I really had to do. I had to really say, yeah, I can do this. I'm a great organizer. I can do this, but I don't have any yes people around me. Yeah. I got all people that hold me accountable around me. So that's why I could thrive because yeah. I bet my mom still hold me. <laughs> like, like my yeah. wife, my kids, man, my 13 year old man, she thinks she, she thinks she my, my mom. Like I'm like, <laughs> you act like you my parent at this point, but it's all love. We, we know, we know the, the power dynamic. But that's the support system, right? I mean, that's, that, that's what's, that's what's laughing, lacking when we, you know, when we have like, kids with with missing parents or with sure. with dependency issues or whatever they're not they can't be really present i mean and and you've you know you've you've managed to you know surround yourself th through through a lot of work and and I, it seems like you you've had to have hard conversations throughout the course of things and you even had you even had problems when you were at metro state you got you got set sure. up and had had to go do time again just to you know just to go through the penalty for it, but people got involved and and I think yes. Ell Ellison got involved right with with you. Well, he didn't get involved. He came down to the jail. He wanted to be my attorney and represent. Oh, that's right. That's but, right. Yeah. But um, he wasn't right. You know, his energy wasn't right, and I asked him to leave the jail. So yeah, that was yeah. pretty much the end of it. You know, but he came down there. It was a like like I say, hundreds of people knew my from 2004 when I started at Metro State. You got to think. I met Angela Davis. I met Marion Wright Edelman. I became a student worker. I was working at the halfway house. I was president of the Black Student Association. Yeah. People understood what I could do. You're right, at this exactly. Point from just, just within a year and a half, from January 2004 till November when it happened, November 9th, when I was set up by my friend, Chief Ellison, all of them knew who I was as far yeah. as helping Hurricane Katrina survivors. I had already show what I could do. Yeah. And um 
Yeah, he came down there. I don't know if he saw it as an opportunity or what his intentions were, but, you know, if I get those records, that will be very interesting. <laughs> those phone records. But, um, yeah, man, I don't allow anybody to just step on me, even if I'm down, even if it don't look like I'm going to come back. And he came down there with some terrible energy, and I had to ask him to leave the jail. But then he drove from North Minneapolis, and this was in Washington County Jail. So he drove probably 45 minutes yeah, about 45 minutes to come out there to see me. And his energy was bad. And I just had to ask him to leave. So it was like a five-minute visit, seven-minute visit. Because yeah. I just wasn't feeling I'd rather sit in the cell than let somebody, you know, talk to me like, you know, um, I'm nothing. So, yeah, it was a lot of people that stepped up. Walanda Shelton, uh, she became my attorney. And um, she's an amazing black woman. And she handled me with care. Yeah. And, you know, she kept my mom abreast of things. She helped me prepare. And, um... I still had to go to jail, but I graduated within three years. You know what I'm saying? I graduated December 2006. So I've had a level of focus that I just needed time to just sit with and let simmer and let, you know, um, you know, really grow within me. And now, you know, I can just see see things on a greater level. So that's what I try to give to other people, because I always say everybody can do this. You know what I mean? I ain't saying everybody, but nearly everybody can have the life they want to live because they so centered on their purpose and what they were meant to do. I see what I was meant to do, yeah. but I'm meant to show what this system is and how it works and do that in a quiet, organized way. Cause really I don't like all that, you know, media it's reporters calling me left and right. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. especially at a time like this and oh, if people find out like Donald is related to me, Oh my God, they're going to be calling. Right. I know how to say, you know, that ain't my vibe. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I don't got to try to figure it out no more. I don't like that. I right. like this. Right. It's more right. intimate. It's more real. I know it's a smaller audience than CNN and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. That's what feels right to me. So I stay authentic and true to my core rather than chasing something or, oh, if I do this, I'm going to get here. No, yeah. I'm motivated by the work that I do. When I see other people get elevated, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm liberated when I see this person come home from prison, going to a higher level. So... Yeah. I feel like it's meant. It was meant for me to go through some of that stuff just so I could be able to come back and say, "Hey, look, this is what I did. You might not think it worked for you, but this was definitely a blueprint yeah. for me to become a professor, for me to be a healthy father, for me to be good with my wife, for me to be able to go home and be loved. It's it's a blueprint. So you know, I just feel like I went through all of those things to learn valuable lessons, and now I make it to where other people don't have to go through that. So. Yeah. Super grateful to be able to and, do that. And 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 so so with with publicity, I mean, I know there's there's a part of your work where you you seem to feel that this this work needs to happen in this sort of almost underground grassroots sort of way that that you know it's it's all about building this this sort of community structure around relationships you know relationships with prisoners relationships with people in your communities. And yet, you know, John Legend tweets about about humanize my hoodie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how how, do, how how does that is it, you know, speaking of dualities? How do you how do you <laughs> how do you manage that? I mean, how do you how do you, how do you use the best of one and still kind of keep this other thing going? Um, I just celebrate it the right way. I think, you know, I like it's hard for me to receive stuff like that. Just yeah, yeah me too. Come on, man! I like I dreamed of stuff like that when I was in prison. Yeah. So. For him to do that, which he didn't have to do, um, it made me feel appreciated. It made me feel validated. Because you got to think, when he did that, it, like people didn't know where I was going to be. I just 
months before left my job in the St. Paul mayor's office. So people kind of, it was some people who counted me out after that and thought like I started tanking and going down. So when he did that, it felt like, oh man, like that's real. It felt right. It felt like, yeah, man, like I don't know why people would fall back off because it was like I was being used in that mayor's office and I didn't really realize it. You know, I left, when I left, that's when I understood, oh, you just about whatever you were going for. It wasn't about the people. And then, you know, so in those moments, you got to go through like a deep, because I mean, I think about Colin Kaepernick leaving the NFL. Like, I know he had to go into a space of just reckoning and thinking and understanding, like, okay, how do I move and pivot? And it just felt right to just organize. So me and Andre was organizing with Humanize My Hoodie, prison visits, connecting with folks. And um, he noticed it. Somebody, you know, um, reached out and was like, hey, man, John Legend is looking at you. And I'm like, I could receive it and appreciate it. But, you know, the, the best thing to do, you know, what I did was when I got the award, we drove to Chicago and I just spent time with my family, you know, like, because they don't care about no John Legend <laughs> Like, like, okay, it's like, it's cool, but I'm still their son, their brother. Like, I'm still, I'm still the same person. So I get that. I I saw this interview, this great interview with um, Maya Angelou and Dave Chappelle. You you got to look it up or I'll send it to you. Yeah. Um, It's from like sometime after he left the show. Yeah. And she was talking about this similar thing. She said, you know, that, that the, her, her quote is, I'm going to paraphrase, but she said something about, you know, people are going to throw all sorts of things at you. You know, it's going to, some of it's going to be good. Some of it's not for you. Yeah. And, but you don't, don't pick it up and don't set it down. That was her, that was her, yeah. you know, the mantra that she used. You, you, and any, any of that stuff you pick up, you got to carry. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, I think. With, with the John Legend piece, of course, it puts me in the spotlight. I mean, I think it was Instagram 20. I mean, it was, the numbers were crazy on that stuff. And um, it, it, it's great. It's, it's amazing. You feel validated in front of the world. You can breathe a little bit. But for me, it's like, now you got to get back to your organizing. Right. That's cool. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, like I say, I'm super grateful. And I think it it moved John Legend because before he gave me that award, he wasn't talking about the fact that his mom was incarcerated. Ah. I can't find one. I can't find one clip. I never heard about it either. Yeah. But after, after he gave me the award, I noticed he did an event in a prison, a whole panel. And he said his mom was incarcerated for like eight months when he was a kid. And I'm Mm. like, Oh my God. So on some level, like, I just look at the sacred pieces in this. I'm not caught up in the glitz and glam. I'm not caught up in that stuff. And I never yeah. want to be caught up in that. You know, I want to be able to just be able to do what I do, be able to go home, be able to not be hated by people I had issues with. That matters more to me than getting a bunch of followers and getting a bunch of people to, um, you know, buy into what I do. I just don't think like that. I think smaller and I think more communal love and how do we protect each other? And how do we work together yeah. and collab? You know, it's yeah. like we got a lot of intersections. Yeah. How do we tighten up these intersections that we have? Well, it's like, yeah, we doing this podcast now, but it's like, you know, some of my other people in Iowa, let's let's figure out a conversation there. Okay, yeah, Katie over there in Frogtown doing some stuff. Let's bring Katie. That's what I like to do because yeah. it makes stronger webs of connection. Yeah. And that's what we need the most. You know, I don't think we need cages and 
people walking around in uniforms to keep us safe. We need more conversations like this yeah. and we need to bring more people in to, for those deep conversations, not just a bunch of stuff for the world. Yeah, sometimes you got to put things out there to set a standard and set a tone. Yeah. I do that. But my day-to-day is more those emails. Yeah. Okay, baby, you set up with your um Zoom for the day. Okay, let's get you going. You need something to eat. Yeah. That's more my day-to-day and I don't yeah. ever want to get outside of that. I don't want, ever want to just get so goal-oriented that I miss out on what's right in front of me. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. And and I and I so so going on to to you know what you you know this foundation that you are trying to to build. And I mean it seems like right now your 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 focus is on on transformative justice. Sure. And and so for people who have you know and and also maybe talk about abolition because this is this is something that that's become yeah. like a, a very you know big big part of of what you're trying to spread but the, the i think people mistake sort of this idea of restorative justice and transformative yeah. justice and is, can can you speak on that a little bit yeah for sure so i've been a national restorative justice trainer since 2008 i was trained in back in 2006 um by Oscar Reed and Jamie uh they do an amazing training so shout out to them but, um, you know, everybody wasn't big on restorative justice back then. You know, mm-hmm. it was kind of quiet and people still learning restorative justice now. But it made sense to me that we can talk through our problems by using a sacred talking piece and go around and let everybody have a voice. And I fell in love with the model. So criminal justice is the system we have. You harm me. And I explained this before. You harm me. We go through a court system like you see with the Derek Chauvin trial. You got to go through all this litigation. It might go through a trial. Most people plea bargain, whatever. That's the criminal justice system we have. It's a criminal punishment system. Right, Mary right, and right. Calls it. But then from there, you have restorative justice. You hurt me. We can figure it out. Like what happened to me when I got shot. We had to have words. We had to have beef. We had to have some of that. But we were able to ultimately sit down and talk through it and figure it out so we never enter that place again. So that's restorative justice. You hurt me. I think we can go through a process and figure it out. And sometimes it takes survivors years to want to go through a process like like that. And that's totally fine. But we want to support those survivors during those times. And we want to support the person who's caused the harm so that they can get themselves together and not do it again. So restorative justice is beautiful. And it was given to us by the Native Americans. Like that's the Native Americans had restorative justice before white supremacy. That's what was being used. Even if somebody committed murder, you sat in that circle and you talked and you figured it out and you, you know, figured out a way to keep them in community while supporting right. the survivor's wishes. And, 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 and in, in community, I mean, this thing that people forget is community requires communication. I mean, this is the sure. one thing you're, you're, you're not, we're not living. And this is, I think, I feel like this is one direction that things have gone where, uh, you know, I, I think people are trying to say, oh, is, is is the world better for, you know, black and indigenous people than it was, say, in the 60s? Well, in some ways, but in other ways, we've, we've also become even more separated in the way that we actually are able to sort of communicate. In, yeah, in, in my I mean, experience. I mean, a lot of a lot of folks and everybody got their own flow. You know, it's like from for, for my wife, who is a therapist, she her flow is different than mine. You know mm. what I mean? Like she don't want to be all in community like that. She got a big family. Yeah. She feel like connecting with her family is, is a big enough task because she, her family is huge. She, you know, she's she's got, got a built-in community. 
Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so for her, she can't do all what I do. I got yeah. two siblings, you know what yeah. I'm saying? But it's like I got a lot of, you know, friends that I like family as well. So yeah. for me, I have to be more communal in my approach and, and, oh, and yeah, do that. That's, but, that's interesting. You know, I respect everybody's way of showing up. You know, some people just say, hey, I want to learn, learn alongside you, man. If you got space for two or three people to work on something, let's do yeah, it. And yeah. I always figure it out. Yeah. That's the transformative piece in all of this. And that's the abolitionist framework right. in all of this because we don't need cages as the thing to help us all stay on track. That's right. that's like asinine at this point. Yeah. So studying abolition, what did Harriet Tubman do? Why did she build an underground railroad? How did she build it? That was important. She yeah. had bird calls. She had people put clothes on the line. She had a, a whole sophisticated system that nobody really knew about unless she was in it. We need those to be healthy spaces so everybody got a space. You know, it's like, yeah. I used to hear that Cheers jingle. It used to say, like, you know, you want to go with, you know, everybody knows your name, man. Yeah. Everybody could have that feeling. You know, yeah. we just got to take all the ego out of it and really say, what are my gifts I'm bringing to the world at this moment? When yeah. we work with folks from their gifts, then you can have the love. You can have the connection. You can have the cohesiveness. But I think we've been brainwashed into having superficial relationships where it's just hella transactional and, you know, we don't ever really get to go deeper and understand yeah, better yeah. terms or understand better ways to love each other. It's just more get what you got to get and go. Get what you got to get and go. And it's just like when we can start understanding that it's more about really living, you know, amongst each other. Where it's like, man, you going to college now? Oh, man, that's cool. You not going to college? You you going to start a business and you work it all? Oh, man, that's cool. You gonna, you about to be an artist? You going to do it? Yeah. That's what kind of community we can all have. We just got to all believe in it. You know, right. some people just believe that we just always going to have strife and violence. And that's not necessarily true. So and, as and, an and support the difference and support the differences, too. If that's, they if they rooted in something that I can get behind. But right, absolutely. Just, like playing devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like some right. people. Oh, I know. Create I know. something out of the wrong energy. My whole I feel like my job is to say. Did you take your time with this? Did you cook it up right? You putting it out the way you want? It don't got to be yeah. perfect, but I just need to see that you put in. Because I'm talking about the young people. You know, we try and give 15-year-olds huge responsibility where it's like, you the manager of this space we have. So every day, you got to be the one to come in, get stuff started before you go to school. Get the, So with us, we got to be a, just realistic about how much do we got to give this young person so they can be their own so social entrepreneur? Yeah. So it's just it's just the, the differences that we have can be ironed out if we can come to just an understanding of what's the standard in it. Yeah. So let me let me give you an example. So I got some people that say, no, I got to reform the system because if you don't work with them, you know, they just going, you know, um. You know, they just going to, you know, go go rogue on us, man. If you, if you don't work within the police department. Right. This is a conversation I'm having with oh, yeah, yeah. and St. Paul, all over, Iowa City, everywhere. And I always have to say, is there a world where we can reduce police departments and lift up the people who get incarcerated the most? Does that world exist? So I feel like in those differences, I can have a conversation about it and I can support what they're doing for reform. 
as long as we can understand that these departments got to get smaller and the love for community got to get bigger. Yeah. So, yeah, as long as we can have an understanding <laughs> and right. just have a conversation, you know, I'm, I'm always happy with that. I'm, I, I speak to people who don't think like me or show up like me or worship like me all the time. You yeah. know what I mean? Like for me, I have and it's the same thing. Like religion has indoctrinated so many people to think away. Where they don't see that they can cross over to somebody and talk to somebody who's atheist or Muslim or, you know, like Buddhist or because it's like my my book says I got to move <laughs> like this. So I see a lot of just systems that block us from having these relationships. Yeah. I'm not trying to tear down those systems. I'm trying to say, how can you have community with a former prisoner, a survivor, uh, um, somebody from the imam, the, the imam from a mosque? The, uh, a Lutheran, a Baptist. Uh, how how do we do it? The yeah. atheist. How do we get the young people? Like how do we do it? And that's always exciting. So abolitionists, we dreamers with plans that help yeah. us actually get to the um, you know, the level of freedom that we're trying to you know really see. Yeah. Well, I, and I I got turned on to the the Mariam Kaba book from you and 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 you know a lot of what she's talking about is like let's let's use our imagination basically you know like let's 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 look at what the reality is too and what's one thing i really appreciate about what your work is you bring everybody into this this big umbrella you know yeah, yeah I, there's an, and and i know <clears throat> just what was going on with um you know the the chinese american community this this yeah. past you know couple weeks and 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 really looking also when 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 we're talking about police reform or you know changing the whole the whole structure of it we yeah. we 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 misconstrue this this sense of of police equating to safety yeah and and really that 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 safety element comes from a completely different institutionalization <laughs> and, yeah. and and that's what that's what we're missing right now yeah, and I mean, I never like most of most of my people never was able to call nine one one. So right. we just glad that the world can actually see, and we've been figuring it out as best as we can. It ain't always been pretty, but we always been figuring out how to keep ourselves safe and how do we like coexist with others who just have a different ideology. You know, like yeah. for me, drugs was a big part of my community, huge part. You know, yeah. everybody was trying to numb some kind of pain. Yeah, and it's like now that I understand that some people, that's just part of, you know, how they show up. It's like, okay, how do we still love them and allow them to keep their job and they occasionally use? We got to think like that. You know, it's like, because if you think a 12-month treatment plan is the is the remedy for everyone with addiction, yeah, I think, you know, we, we're being misconstrued. We're all different. We all show up different. Our, yeah. our habits are different. The parts of our lives that are not as great, we got to put more work in, but it looks different for everyone. Miriam Kaba, like, it, and it's just not Miriam Kaba. Miriam Kaba, right now, we should be studying for sure. Yeah. You think Angela Davis, you think Michelle Alexander, you think Ava DuVernay. Look at what Colin Kaepernick is doing. He's teaching kids their rights. Yeah. And they get, a auto, they get a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X, too. I think that's just dope that yeah. each kid that comes gets nurtured. They eat. They follow the Black Panther model of free breakfast before school. So mm -hmm. it's a lot of abolitionists doing a lot of amazing things. And we should have listened to them a long time ago because yeah. the cage or the threat of the cage has always been so powerful that it's yeah. just been yeah. swooping people up without adequate defense and all of those things. Now it's time to say, what does mutual aid look like? Right. 
you need something, I'm here for you. And this did, this is across the board. Our yeah. Asian American community, first thing I do, reach out to the folks I know and say, hey, what y'all need? What can I do at a time like this to help? So I could be a good accomplice to them. Yeah. So it's just about being flexible and being able to say, hey, I'm not disabled. I'm an able-bodied person, but I care about folks who are disabled. What does it look like for me to show up for you? And that doesn't mean I'm going to spend, you know, uh, two hours each week, you know, talking with you. That means I'm going to show up in a way that shows I'm in solidarity with you yeah. and I want to help you in a meaningful way, not for no performative public stuff. This right, is right. for, you know, I got you. I know I got you. Let me utilize my network to, you know, be able to give you what you need. So I just think capitalism really makes people miss out on what this life is was really meant for. I know people who work their whole life and then they look back and it's just like they wish they did it differently. I don't I don't want that experience or want yeah. to have that reality. So I just encourage everybody, think about how much time you spend in towards chasing something, then also think about how much time are you just spending with community, making sure other folks are right? So absolutely, I stand in solidarity with Somali community when they need me. Any community, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Survivors yeah. need me. Women's, you know, like, look at that legislation. Yeah. It's terrible. It doesn't protect women. So the system has always subjugated, you know, women, people of color, disabled folks. Anybody, who, if you're not a, if you're not a white man, you you on the chopping block in a yeah. lot of different ways. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's what's important to understand because cops don't keep us safety. Cops keep the institution alive. They keeps because think about this. We abolish police. It's going to be a lot of criminal justice programs out here, <laughs> out here yeah. on the college level. That's going to be like, oh, shoot, what do we do now? If we don't have police. Figure it out. Right. So it's time for all of us to just figure it out. We we smart enough to do it though. Well, and and I, and it it just makes you realize like where where the where the money should be going is into is into social justice social justice or social programs yeah. and and civil civil service. I mean, and and this this should be something that ev- it should be something we we should all feel obliged to engage in. You know, I mean, yeah. I that's part of the reason I'm doing the podcast. This is not a money making endeavor for me. Yeah, I, I I've been fortunate in my career to to be able to have people pay me out of pocket to not have to deal with the insurance system. So I get to I get to really work the way that I want to. I don't have to I don't have sure. to think about what I got to write down for coding and insurance and all that stuff right. and I'm faster you know because of that yeah. I get people I get people through a process a lot faster and I have I have a network so I know sure. who this person needs to go see if it's not me and that kind of thing and that's what people start to rely on you for just like they do with you for sure and for and, sure. and I think we should all kind of think about what in what small ways we can be leaders in, in terms of civil service too absolutely I mean every we all here for a reason we all like I think everybody is here for a reason I really believe that yeah. so for me I'm always in a space of how do I help the next person get to their dream? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, how do I, like, I'm, I'm going to have my goals and the things that I want to accomplish in this life, and I'm going to just work hard to make that happen. But on the other end, it's like, we got to get to a place where we love seeing a person next to us or the person that's doing exactly what we do when. Like, Mary Kaba, for, for years, we've just missed each other in spaces. Is that right? Like barely, barely missing each other <laughs> in spaces. Like she knows people. I know we got some of the same community members. So for me, it's like I lift up Miriam Cobble. Because it's like my book going to hit pretty hard too. My next yeah. one, <laughs> hey, I guarantee you, my next one going to be in a bigger conversation. Like, When's it coming out? I don't know. Probably 
closer to the end of the year, maybe September. Okay. You know, I got a lot of the material now, but I, I'm not, I'm in no rush. You know yeah. what I mean? I'm just taking my time playing around with it. But when I do come with it, I know what it's going to do because I know I put the time in it. I put the energy into it. I made it. But I don't see other people as my competitors. Yeah. I see them as people I need to lift up because they're doing some super amazing work. Yeah. That's what we all need to hold on to. It's like, man, congratulate the people who you feel like in the same realm as you. Like, you don't got to. It's not a crabs in a barrel thing. Right. No, it's enough for everybody to go around. People just need to realize that. Yeah, yeah. Well, man, I, I appreciate your work and, I, and I'm gonna make sure that you know, more people know about you, but also um, for anybody who wants to get involved you know, and, and learn more about you or about, about Humanize My Hoodie, which I, you know, if, you, if you wanna talk a little bit about that, Absolutely. I think that might be helpful. Absolutely. Um, Humanize My Hoodie was started with a friend, uh, Andre Wright, met him at 16. He was my first friend in Waterloo. When I came from Chicago, he the first person I met um, great person, you know, through and through. Everybody knows <laughs> Andre in Iowa, you know, and New York and other places. Like he's he, traveled all over the fashion, country. fashion designer now, right? Absolutely, absolutely. He's a fashion designer. He's graphic designer. He's a, he's amazing and amazing family man. He's he's great in a lot of ways. But I made a post because I was teaching, you know, um, as a criminal justice professor at at Hamlin and. I said, I'm going to teach with a hoodie on the whole semester. And I made I, a I post this, yeah. <laughs> hashtag to humanize my hoodie. And yeah. I didn't have any thoughts of that word or the three words together before I made the post. But um, yeah, I just said, you know, humanize, humanize my hoodie. And everybody was loving it. And he said, hey, let's go ahead and make it official and do something serious with yeah. it. Yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. So he knew the fashion world. I knew academia and I knew you know, community organizing. Because yeah. at the time I was president of the Minneapolis NAACP. Yeah. So I said, I don't got a lot of time to cook it up, but things worked out right. And, you know, these are our jobs now. And we get to just show up and do what we do. Like I get to read, write and organize nearly every day. And that feels like the best space for me. And the yeah. same thing for him. He gets to read, write and design yeah. every single day. And that's what liberation really looks like. So Humanize My Hoodie is inspiring a lot of people, especially people coming home from prison. So we grateful for that because there's people all the time running to each other like, man, I seen somebody with your hoodie on. And I said, it's like, that's a day. That just feel good, man. Well, it's like those kind of vibes. That's, how, that's so, how we're connected too, through, yeah, through, through yeah. Christine, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, that's just a beautiful thing because yeah. it means something. When people look at it, they like, dang, humanize my hoodie. Oh my God. Like people, I can see people having a reaction when they look at me and they see it say humanize my hoodie. It's a different, it's a different feeling. And we haven't really, really, you know, we don't really understand what it is at this point. You well, know what I, I mean? I, I, I connected with it through, I remember you telling some story in, in your book about when you were shot and you were sort of like, you know, almost trying to explain to the, to the medical people, like, listen, yeah. I'm important. I'm important to a lot of people, <laughs> my mother yeah. and all these people in my family. And to have them, to have them humanize you in that moment. I mean, in, in, in yeah. a way that messaging, um, it's, it's, it's almost a kind of armor, you know, kind of, yeah. it, it lets people know, like, think for a second before you, before you do something here. Absolutely. And that's why I say we grateful for the conversations yeah. that happen across the world. Yeah. People looking at somebody's hoodie and saying, dang, man, I was thinking something else of you before. I'm sorry. Yeah. This is really happening. So, like I say, it's grateful it's to powerful. see. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just, man, it's like the power in it is just like 
insane. So we're grateful, man. We in foot actions across the country. I think we're in 110 stores now. Um, all across. We even got hoodies, you know, on the block Biggie grew up on on Fulton Avenue. So Chicago, I know, I know where Fulton. <laughs> yeah, so it's just like everything has really worked out, you know, yeah. where you know it's like we get to change and move the culture. And, and, like, and, and there's a and there's a, a nonprofit part of this, or you're 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 trying to give proceeds to arts organizations and we give proceeds all it like that's in, that we give proceeds to other groups all the time. Like we yeah. gave ten thousand dollars to Colin Kaepernick through working with Warner Music. Oh, that's group. cool. Created the hoodie, so yeah, we all about giving. Like that's that's embedded in what we do. You know, it's like I mean, we do more giving than we do like <laughs> like anything else. Like we give back to you know. um Cities we from, like I say, Waterloo, we've done so much there for, I mean, for funerals, for, we've done a lot and we just never really, it's not about broadcasting it to the world. It's yeah. just saying like, we got a platform, we can help, let's pull this together and be able to do it. So yeah, Humanize My Hoodie has changed in a lot of industries. I mean, it's not fat, it's not just fashion industry, it's music industry, it's a food industry where people wear Humanize My Hoodie for their uniforms. It's like, it's, it's everywhere now, and yeah. it's like just a blessing to see it grow, for real. Well, man, I, I appreciate your work, and, and this, I ho hope this is not the last conversation we have. Oh, we'll be, we'll be in contact. <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. All right, thanks for having All me, right. man. We'll thanks, Jason. Soon. All right, see you. Dr. Jason Soul, folks. Seriously, one of the most inspiring people I've met. It's time to use our imagination and to put some design thinking to work. We are highly intelligent and we have so much potential, but as I said in my elegy to George Floyd last summer in episode 70, it's impossible for any one of us to be well, to be truly healthy and thrive when any one of us is left unsupported. Jason's recommendation for anyone struggling to understand how we're affected by modern policing and what a new system could look like is to read Mariam Kaba's book, We Do This Till We Free Us. I'll have a link here in the show notes for you as well. As she writes, we need to creatively consider how we can grow, build, and try other avenues to reduce harm, to improve the sole option we've been offered by the state. You can write me and share your thoughts on this topic and conversation by reaching out to me anytime through the contact page on our website, highway2.health. That's highwayto.health. And if you're interested in supporting Jason's work through Humanize My Hoodie or getting yourself some gear and supporting this movement, the website is humanizemyhoodie.com. And that link will be in the notes here on the app as well. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends.